This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is the only thing Ephesians we're really going to run through today are these two verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would move us to a place where we would understand your call in our lives and the truth of the gospel that we are not a people who have to run out and try to appease various gods and goddesses, that we have the truth, that there is a God who has extended himself towards us in grace and mercy and called us to himself. And so I ask today that we would understand that, the great call that, that we have received and the goodness of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, starting a brand new series today. Uh, I mean... It, it is like the second week of 2024. I feel like next week it's going to be Christmas. That's how fast last year went. It's just nuts. And when I started writing this message, I was going, I hope California isn't destroyed by wildfire or drought. And then we got tons of rain, so by floods, apparently. And then I'm wondering, you know, Jesus coming back or not, which was not, would not be a bad thing. And yet here we are, right? 2024, stepping into a brand new year. This is going to be a crazy year. It's an election year. Oh my goodness, all kinds of stuff is going to happen. So we need some good perspective. I think the book of Ephesians can actually do that for us. And it's funny because, you know, this is an election year and Ephesians talks about election a lot. Bible humor. No, nobody. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, a couple years ago, I came up with this plan where I wanted to do the beginning. There, Galatians in 2023, Ephesians in 2024, Philippians in 2025, and then Colossians in 2026. Not the whole year, but the beginning of the years to kind of start with that. Because all these the books are written to different churches in different areas that are going through different things. But I think they all relate to exactly where we are today. And I made this plan before I was reminded by somebody on staff that I actually did take you guys to the book of Ephesians like 13 years ago. I know, Ellen's been around a while at this point. But I think it was only 13 weeks. Uh, this is going to be 24 weeks. It's going to be just a little bit longer, like twice as long, because I think I've grown a bit. It's going to be different, more mature, reflecting me and my maturity. <laughs> it's not supposed to be as funny as that, but thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> now, Today, I just want to warn you, uh, there's going to be a lot of background. You may feel like you're getting overwhelmed by so much information. It's not my intent, but I want to kind of talk about a little bit of the intro of Ephesians and then give you the ideas of where Paul was the first time he went to Ephesus, because this takes place, you know, some years after that, but he still probably has all of this in his mind. So I'm going to give you some background of the book a bit, and then we're going to step into Paul's first trip when he went to the city of Ephesus. So Ephesians is a really interesting book. There's actually actually a little bit of debate centered around it, even about who it was written to. Seems pretty simple, the church in Ephesus. But the problem with that is some of our earliest manuscripts don't actually have the word Ephesus in that. And this is why the Bibles you have in your hands are, are the most accurate possible. The Bible is not a translation of a translation of a translation, and then you get it. We're going back to the earliest manuscripts directly to you. And in many of your Bibles, there will be this little note at the bottom, and it will say, some manuscripts, saints who are also faithful, omitting the word Ephesus. 
So you have that footnote, so you know that. There are all sorts of theories to explain this and talk about it, but the best one is this letter was probably originally written just like the book of Galatians to a set of churches in the area of Ephesus. And that's why it's written like that. Now the letter itself is written in a much more formal way than a lot of the Apostle Paul's other letters, and people sometimes miss this. Uh, it's kind of laid out theologically with a really great trajectory. Other of Paul's letters, they look like a street level debate, just like boom, 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 and they're rapid fire. And I really think by the time we get to the end of the book, you're not going to remember what I said right now anyway. So I, sometimes I wonder, why do I tell you this? Because it's important, all right? Uh, in the book of Ephesians, you get to chapter 4. It will have this word. It'll say, therefore. And therefore tells you that chapters 4 through 6 are actually based on what happens in chapters 1 through 3. So chapter 4 through 6 is practical. It's based on the theology from chapters 1 through 3. And this is why you spend so much time. You want to walk through the theology of what Paul is talking about before it ever gets to the practicalness of our lives. N.T. Wright actually likens the book of Ephesians to the London Eye in London. Uh, the London Eye, there's, here's a picture of the London Eye. You have probably seen pictures of this. You're like, oh, that's a nice Ferris wheel. Actually, it's so much more than that. This thing is 450 feet tall. It has 32 capsules that can each hold 20 people. Here's another picture. Right? This is, this is that. Uh, it takes them half an hour to rotate this thing all the way around. Here's another picture. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's what you see. And you get to the top of this. And if you ride in this thing, you will see all of central London. He says you'll see the historic buildings, the cathedrals, the abbeys, the parks, the gardens, Big Ben, House of Parliament. He says it's one of the best places to get the best possible view of London. And that's written by a Londoner. And then he says Ephesians is like that for Paul, because it's like the London Eye. It's not the fullest or the longest of all of Paul's writings, but it offers a view of his entire theological landscape. And so you'll see Paul talk about God, the world, Jesus, the church, the means of salvation, Christian behavior, marriage, family, spiritual warfare. And if you've never read Paul, you're going to get a really great overview of what he believed and how he taught. If you have read Paul, you're going to get a great fresh perspective on how all of his thinking holds together. Chapter 1, which we will step into really next week, has been called nosebleed theology because it's so high. It's like the only seats we could afford it, like a Taylor Swift concert, because they're really... Gosh. <laughs> Everything's just falling flat today. So... All right, it is so high and lofty. And so chapter one really sees salvation from God's point of view. How does God look at him saving us? Pretty high. And then chapter two starts out looking at salvation from a human point of view. Chapter three kind of puts those together. And then chapter four, five, and six, which are practical, hinge on chapters one, two, and three. Why? Because we cannot really live practically in our lives unless we know what we believe. In other words, doctrine matters. And this summer, we're going to do the book of 1 Timothy, a high overview of it, but we're going to call it Doctrine Matters because it's really important. One person I was reading pointed out that there is nothing so dangerous in our lives as to say, it doesn't matter what you believe religiously. Like some people today say, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as I live as a decent person. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, founding father of America, you know, smart guy, did some great things, did some also not so great things, but he actually wrote a letter and he said this, I've never tried to persuade someone else to believe as I believe about God because who knows? It doesn't matter what you believe. It is by my life and by my deeds that my life is validated, not my beliefs. Now, don't hate Paul here or me as the messenger, but the book of Ephesians completely contradicts Thomas Jefferson. 
It really does. Paul says your beliefs are going to dictate how you live your life. They're absolutely practical for your daily living. And so Paul is being logical, and Thomas Jefferson, who was a very logical guy at this point, is being illogical. Because Jefferson is not understanding the relationship between these two things. The average American today really likes what Jefferson said, though. So would have the average Ephesians. But Paul says you cannot live a decent, loving life except on the basis of belief and faith. And really, it comes down to doctrine. If somebody says to you, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're decent and loving, guess what? That's a belief. That's, that's a doctrine right there. They have done something they told you that you are not allowed to do. And so who defines what's decent and loving? And if someone tries to define decent and loving, well, guess what? They just laid out a doctrine. There you go. They're doing this thing they say they're not doing. And this is the problem with the city of Ephesus as well. So what I want to do, as I said, is I want to give you the feel for the city of Ephesus. I want you to see what it was like the first time that Paul ever went there before we step into the rest of the book, because it will kind of explain some of the things that Paul says. So if you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 19. Uh, we actually ran through this a couple years ago. We went through the second half of the book of Acts. It's on page 608 if you're going to use one of the Bibles at Element. And what you will see is that the people in Ephesus that Paul writes to, they're really a lot like us. Paul will tell them that Christians, we should make sure we don't let things like Jefferson's contradictions eat us up because there really is no basis for morality except understanding our relationship to Jesus. There's no basis for talking about morality or decency unless you understand really the nature of God. Paul will say in chapter 5 that we aren't gonna, we're not going to have good marriages. We can't deal with our consciences from chapter 6 or work in a way that's satisfying from chapter 6 or solve our differences and communicate from chapter 4 unless we understand these great doctrines about the nature of God and salvation and sin and Jesus as our sin bearer who brings about adoption into our lives, this forgiveness, this relationship with God. And so what it means to live, live a Christian life is to really understand that there is, there is nothing that we can live in in the truth if we don't first understand the truth that's been given to us. So Jefferson was wrong, and I think many people in America and in Ephesus were living as if Jefferson was right. And that's kind of places where we're going. So Ephesus is one of the leading cities in one of the most prosperous regions of the Roman Empire. Part of this was because it was one of the few places that had decent roads, a good harbor, and a usable river. This permitted the free movement of exercise of commerce, but also ideas like spirituality. Literally, all roads led to Ephesus. All geographical markers extended out from the city of Ephesus. And because it's a port city, you had all these religious ideas that would start to move their way into the city of Ephesus, which means everybody had their own spirituality of whatever worked for them. Sound like America? Sounds like America, exactly. Now, does it relate directly to Santa Maria? Eh, we're not a port city. We're not a major hub, if you thought we were. Wow, weird awakening there. Um, but we are close to Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, uh, L.A., San Francisco. People live here, telecommute, and then drive once a week to their workplaces. So we still do get flooded with ideas. And I've mentioned this before, but at this time, magic was really central as an extension of the spirituality of the people in Ephesus. They believed that the world is filled with good and evil and that there were also good and evil spirits out there that are involved in this world. In Ephesians 6, Paul will take this on when he speaks about the armor of God, that our welfare or warfare is not just against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual forces as well. And because the Ephesians were afraid of these spiritual forces, they started to try to use 
witchcraft and voodoo and incantations to manipulate the spiritual realms to work for them instead. Because when people understand that evil is real and the spiritual realm is real, sometimes that leads to a lot of fear. So they jump to spiritual things to try to protect themselves. And in Ephesus, they realize that there is evil out there. And the response is various type of superstitions and incantations and magic. We know of 50 to 100 plus different gods and goddesses that were worshipped in the city of Ephesus. And throughout the book, Paul will constantly talk about Christ being overall, that he is the head of all things, that everything is under his feet. And he talks like that because these people live in a world that is not following Jesus, but considers themselves to be very spiritual. The USA Today is not filled with atheists. We are filled with spiritual people. But what do they believe? It doesn't really matter as long as you are spiritual. I've told you the statistic before that people in America, we have more people that claim to be spiritual than will say they brush their teeth every day. That, that, that's a big one right there. And so they claim it isn't important what you really pray to. And so Paul's going to show the difference between spirituality and God. And that's really the heart of Ephesians. Religion is this human attempt for mankind to serve their own view of God. Spirituality is a general devotion to whatever spirit, sky fairy you think is going to make you feel good. But Christianity is based upon this historical good news that God has stepped into the world to come and rescue and save us exactly where we are. So Ephesus. Many gods, no clarity, everyone doing their own thing. Again, ring any bells. Yes, you're right. Yeah, j just like that. Thomas Jefferson. So Ephesus at this time had about 250,000 people in it, but it would swell much, much bigger than that because there was all kinds of rites and festivals. The seventh wonder of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, was there. The cult of Artemis maintained power in the city because they had land holdings and banking. There's no separation of church and state. And if you maybe wanted to buy a chariot you couldn't afford or a home or a donkey or go to college, you had to go to the cult of Artemis. They controlled the politics because they control the money. Hmm. See, it's just like us today. All right. So when we step into the book of Acts to see what this was like the first time Paul got there, I'm going to give you four things in this. Number one, first thing you see is Christianity is exclusive because of its worship of Christ, but everyone is invited in. So it's exclusive. We worship Jesus alone, but everyone's invited in. So how do we see that? Acts 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he, Paul, said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm sure there's some explaining in this. It's like, I love Lucy, got some explaining to do. That's what happens right here. Verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There are about 12 men in all. Now, when you read this, most people lose all focus on the narrative, what's actually being said, and we get in this debate on this thing called tongues. If you don't know what tongues are, tongues is this gift that God gave His people in certain places where they would speak and people in other areas would hear them in their own native languages. Now, I'm not going to try to get all caught up in that, but suffice to tell you, the Holy Spirit here is evidence of salvation, not 
tongues. There are different occurrences of tongues in the book of Acts, and this is very telling. The first one is to the disciples, then to some Gentiles, and to John's disciples. And what it is showing you is that everybody is invited in. Our worship of Christ is exclusive of who he is, but yet Everybody's invited in. Everybody can be part of the kingdom and the family of God. Luke shows these occurrences to show that salvation, God's spirit, is open to everyone. Salvation is not for a small subset of people on the earth who had a Hebrew lineage and who kept the law and were circumcised. It's for all people. And so here you have a group of people. They want to be part of God's work in the world. They're looking forward to it. Uh, John the Baptist, like following him. John may have even baptized some of them, but they hear this and like, no, we want to follow and see what God is doing in the world. This is why Paul asked them, what do you actually believe? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asks about the Holy Spirit because every single person who trusts in Christ, you have the Spirit of God in your life period. You are saved. You are born again. What God's Spirit does is He baptizes us. He takes us and immerses us. He places us into the family of God. You may think, I don't have any family. Well, now you do. You are immersed into the family of God. That's what God's Spirit does, and it is beautiful. Part of the book of Acts is where Luke is showing that God is bringing the world back to himself through his own redemption. These guys don't know the Spirit of God is active in the world. Theirs is this works-based idea. I do these things, and that'll make God love me. I do these things, and then I get to be part of the kingdom of God. And no, Paul says, it's God's spirit comes in, rescues you by grace, places you into the family of God. These guys are like Rip Van Winkle. They fell asleep one day, they woke up the next day. It's a whole different world. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't know anything about God's Spirit. He did come upon Jesus when Jesus was baptized. John taught the Messiah would baptize believers with the Spirit and fire, but they didn't know that promised Spirit had come. So here they are, together as a group, hanging out, worshiping God. They may have even gone to the local synagogue, and Paul shows up and tells them about Jesus, and they're like, we're in. Let's go. Second thing is this. Christianity is meant to lead us to move the message of the gospel outward, always outward. The main thing Luke is showing in Acts 19, this is the Spirit's work and what he is doing in Paul in Ephesus to show that from the very beginning, Paul is concerned about God's work in the world. So he comes in, Acts 19 verse 8, and he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, now the way is Christianity before it was called Christianity, it's called the way, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, again, Paul's first trip to Ephesus. This is what's beginning to take place. Paul goes in, talks to 12 guys. It's like, boom, they believe, let's go. Obviously, some instruction and clarification. And then he goes to the synagogue, as is his custom, and Orthodox Jews. And three months later, he is just running his head against a wall. Nothing is moving forward, no progress. And that can be discouraging when you have all this effort and all of this enemy. I mean, he shows up, 12 guys, 10 minutes. It's like, woo, this is going to be great. 
And three months later, not a whole lot of movement. Now, this is a little bit, I feel like sometimes, like Element. Like we started 30 people, grew to a couple hundred, eventually to about 400 plus kids, and then it plateaus because it stops being exciting at a given point when it's like we need to drill down and we need to start getting serious about what discipleship looks like and speaking the gospel and speaking that in each other's lives and working towards this. And things start to get a little bit harder. But we want to be like Paul in Ephesus. We don't give up. We speak the gospel, we speak the message of that, and sometimes we've got to do what Paul does, and sometimes you just go around obstacles and you, and you keep going. Paul goes to a local lecture hall and keeps speaking about the gospel. Paul does what a lot of churches should do. Go out, help people to understand what the gospel really means, and call people to live that practically in their lives in the world. And it grows from there, where people who have nine to five jobs or 10 to six jobs or seven to seven jobs, whatever they are, they begin to open their homes. You reflect upon the scriptures and speak the gospel to each other and live and reach our city. And what happens? It tells you so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Do we really want that? And I know when I ask that question, most people, oh yeah, we really want that. But do we? Do you want people from all these different places in this town being welcomed in here on a Sunday morning? They might change the musical style. <gasps> well, you, some of you might be like, great, let's do that. You know, you, you know <laughs> I get it. But, you know, all of a sudden, different things feel different. Different things start to change. Do we really want that? What we have to understand is that ours is not meant to be a worship of ourselves. It's meant to be a worship of who Jesus is as the gospel goes out. And so God gathers us together like this on a Sunday so we would worship who he is. But that's not where it stops. That's not that center of what we do. We go out and we take that gospel outward and how we live it and how we scatter in our neighborhoods and our jobs and our friendships. See, First off, you see in Ephesus that worship of Jesus, it is exclusive in who he is, but it's open to everybody. And secondly, Christianity leads us to move the message of the gospel outward, always, always. Third thing you see is this, that Christianity is centered in God's work and not ours. Now, this is the tough part, because here you get into some weird stuff in Acts 19. And again, keep this in mind when we hit the book of Ephesians, because this is what Paul experienced when he first got there. You step out in the world, God's going to do what he needs to do to make that gospel message go forward. Acts 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So who's doing the miracles? God. Great answer. You're in church. You're going to be right when you say it. Okay. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, now some TV preachers have taken this and said, oh, we're going to start the hanky ministry. You send me $100 and I will mail you a hanky that I prayed over, put it on your granny, she's going to feel better. No, no, God is doing a work in this city in a specific way. You got to hear me. The Bible has in it what are called prescriptive texts and descriptive texts. Prescriptive texts tell us what to do. Like husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, worship God above all, don't murder, don't sing in a boy band. Like, you know, these are like prescriptive texts. And then you have descriptive texts. And descriptive texts tell us what happened. This area was invaded. This king did this. Uh, the Not So Little Women series. This lady stabbed this guy in the temple with a tent peg and put his head on the ground. You're not supposed to go out and do that. It's just telling you what happened. And here, hankies touched Paul and went out and healed people. And sometimes we get these things so confused. Some people read stuff in the Bible like today's section dealing with God's power and they go a bit kooky. Sometimes you will see God do amazing things around the world and do these miracles and people say, 
well, why doesn't God do that anymore? Well, God works how he knows he needs to work in a given culture. Like our culture has become very reasoned. We're very westernized. We have a lot of questions about things. And so God has given people the ability to reason through a lot of stuff. You go to other places in the world, God is still doing miracles. It's that God works how he knows he needs to work in given areas. Now, could God do the hanky ministry? Sure, God can do anything he wants. But again, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. As what comes next. Again, the point is God is doing a work. So here we go. Acts 19, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. All right, so Ephesus. Everybody is looking for some spiritual thing to give them power over the evil spirits. And here what happens is the Ghostbusters show up. Who are you going to call? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so here they show up. And I got to swear, if there's something in the Bible I could really just see in a movie correctly, this would be it right here. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay. So let's talk about this just for a second. I mean, I read this and I think Hollywood, you know, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? People hate it when I do that. But seriously, we don't know what it sounds like. It could have sounded like Mickey Mouse. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, ha, ha, you know, and (laughs) the direction Disney's going today, it could have been like, you know, anyway, but (laughs) this is a descriptive text. And yet, you'll see Hollywood and churches take this. This is really the only place a demon is portrayed like this in the Bible. And yet, this is what people run with. Most of the places, they, they're in fear. Jesus, don't cast us out. Jesus, oh, and, they're, and they're afraid of Jesus and his power. It's a descriptive text. You have to be careful. Luke in Acts, Paul in the book of Ephesians, is trying to get us to see who has real power. It is God. Jesus is flexing his power and his rule over this city so that in this spiritual battle, you see who has real strength. And in a spiritual battle, you cannot use Jesus' name like a lucky charm. The power of Christ compels you. You can't do that. You must actually believe in him. And yet a lot of Christians today do this. We call it superstition. Uh, my wife tells me I'm not allowed to talk about dying because it just might happen. <laughs> I know some Christians who wear, uh, uh, have a cross on their neck, and they think if I die, that cross straight to heaven. Like, not the blood of Jesus. This cross gets me there. I have talked to uh, a lot of addicts throughout my course of time as a pastor, and some addicts have just these gigantic Bibles. Uh, it's like it's my granny's Bible, and, and I said, why do you carry that thing around? It protects me. I'm thinking if you strap it to your chest, it could take a bullet, but it's not voodoo. I mean, it's It's not voodoo. This is what we're being told. It is faith and trust in who God is and what he is doing. What happens? Acts 19, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Why does God allow that to take place? Why? So that this awe, this majesty for who God is would be seen and that Jesus would be praised and extolled. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Put that in modern vernacular, that's probably about $1.5 million. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Mightily is the word for power. 
What is happening here is that Christianity is centered in God's work in the world and His power and what He is doing. And we want to trust Him and simply be part of that. Jesus' power is being seen so strongly in the city of Ephesus that these other religious persuasions are acknowledging that there is a power they do not possess. Some want the benefits of Jesus without submitting their lives to Him like the sons of Siva, but others have this holy awe and this fear that come upon them that brings them to extol the name of Jesus. In Ephesus, you have all these spiritual people, hundreds of different gods, and they're beginning to realize that not all the spirits are good. Peter Kraft once wrote that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, it is idolatry. And these guys essentially pull out their tinfoil hats and their UFO books and their trinkets and their amulets and their tarot cards and their team jerseys, and they burn it all. And don't worry, Paul is not saying burn your team jerseys. I know it's playoffs right now. You guys are, what? He's not telling you burn your team jerseys or your rock albums or things like that. What you learn from Paul's first trip to Ephesus is this. What we worship apart from Christ has no value. That is what he is telling us. Everything that we run our lives towards, that we place our hope in, that is apart from Christ, it has no value. And I know this is a lot. I mean, you read the beginnings of this church in Ephesus, and then when Paul writes this letter, you're like, wow, yeah, he had a lot of things he had to work through here. Acts 19, you get this feeling of, Oh my goodness, you know, that, that's crazy. I told you before, it'd be like driving down the 101 and there's a bunch of people tossing Ouija boards into a big old bonfire on the side of the road and you're like, what are you doing? And they say, we just started a church. You'd be like, call me when you get your 501c3. I gotta keep driving. Because it'd be a, a little bit weird. And that's, there's a spontaneous thing of God working in their lives and doing this. And Ephesus, this is just this amazing power of God's work and His Spirit and people's lives are being changed because everyone is being invited in. But the worship of Christ is central. It is about the gospel going out. It's about God's work in the world. And Paul writes his letter to the people in this area to remind them of the gospel, the power of God, ground them in good Christ-centered theology as God works and wills among them. What is interesting is that at the end of the Bible, we get to this book called Revelation. And this is decades after this. And in Revelation, Jesus will actually speak to this church in Ephesus and he will tell them, you've lost your first love. You've forgotten your first love. This love of the gospel of God's movement of all that God was doing, you've lost that. And so you have this here, you have that there, and in the middle of that, Paul writes his letter to this church, which kind of leads to my fourth thing is this. Christianity is meant to be about the central announcement of the gospel, the central announcement of the good news. So in Ephesus, you have sorcery and superstition, and superstition has its roots in this idea that the gods, the goddesses, whatever, are angry at me, and so I've got to find the right spells and the right behaviors and the right rituals and the right incantations to keep all of these gods appeased because they're always mad at me, and they always want to find a way to do mean things to me. The central announcement of the good news in the gospel is that God has sent His Son to save us. That's the announcement. It is what God is that God is good and He is love and He has sent Jesus to make peace with us. You don't have to make peace with capricious gods because there is one God and this God has bent His heart towards you. He has come for you. And this is a profound historical shift in this understanding that God does not change, that God is not capricious, that He is all-powerful and He has come to redeem us. There is this powerful announcement to the people in Ephesus who have been so worried and so scared through all these spiritual things. And the announcement is, you can know where you stand with God because God 
has brought peace. That's so you know. And that news, when rightly understood, even today, I think can spread like wildfire. Why? Because it's God's work in the world. We worship Christ exclusively, but everybody is invited in. It is God's work that goes out. The gospel moves forward. And at the beginning of Ephesians, we've got to ask this question. Does our trust in God lead us to a place where we want to lift up Christ and not ourselves? Because we will see that God is calling us to a place of loving Him first, just like He calls the church in Ephesus too. We understand that when we walk in that, it actually brings a power into our lives. And so we don't want to be like Thomas Jefferson, because that can lead to an apathy in the world. Oh, you know, what does it matter if I tell you who I think God is? Well, it matters. It matters because the gospel is this announcement that God is good and He loves us, and the gospel goes out and transforms the world. And this is why we want to speak about it and understand it. And this is why I think it's good to understand as Paul writes this letter to the people in the city, in this area, this is what he experienced the first time he went there. And he didn't just go in for a few days. He goes in for a few years and he talks about this to help them to understand that you have been running your life. You've been so afraid of all these things you don't understand all these weird superstitions that somehow you believe you do these things and these things work out, that the gods are angry with you, that gods always want to just steamroll you and run you. No, God has come in the person of Christ to rescue you. He has seen our lost and our broken state and has come to us in that lost and broken state to lead us back to himself. That is that announcement of that good news that God has and is so good to us. And this is what we remember every week when we come to this place of communion. You break a cracker like Christ's body was broken. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It resembles Christ's body and blood that has been shed for us. So we have the ability to step into a relationship with God in His goodness and in His grace. That God calls us back to Himself. That God loves us deeper than we could ever possibly imagine. That God has extended peace toward us, not because of what we have done, but because of what he does. And that leads us to a security to speak the gospel and to understand that we can let go of everything in our lives that we try to worship apart from him because anything that's not Jesus has no value. So he becomes central to our lives and how we live. If you need prayer today, right across the way in the lounge will be some people who are willing to pray with you. Maybe you have set some things up in your life where you think I have to do these things in order for God to love me. Or I have to do these things in order for other people to care about me. And you have all this weight upon you. They would love to pray with you and talk to you about understanding the grace that has been extended to you in the person of Christ. That you do not have to live like people in Ephesus always trying to find the next thing to make you feel safe or secure. You can actually live a life in freedom and grace and hope because God has extended that to every single one of us. We invite you to give. There's offering boxes on the side wall. Uh, you can give online, but at Element, we do not pass an offering plate because we believe that we are supposed to be a generous people because we realize God has first been generous, so it's a response. It's why we don't pass communion throughout the room. It's a response. It's why we don't force you to pray on the way out the door. It's a response. All the things we do are responses to what God has done and continues to do. So I'd encourage you to grab those sermon notes, look at the questions that kind of run throughout that, and come to a place where we lay all of ourselves before who Christ is, as we begin to start this series, 
to understand that God is not capricious, that God is not going one way and then another. You know, can I trust him? Who is he? I don't know if he's mad at me today or happy. God loves you. He's extended peace towards us as a people. And so I encourage you to come to a place to live and understand that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we do ask that you would move us to an understanding of what the gospel truly speaks of. The grace that has been given to us, not because we deserve it, but because you are graceful. And so I'd ask that this morning you would begin to reveal to us all the things that we have placed in our lives that we try and find meaning in. The things that we try to run after to give us our hope and our purpose. All the things that aren't you. And that we would set those aside and surrender ourselves directly to you. That we would understand that it's not about us trying to make peace with you. It's that you have made peace with us. And we simply get to step into that peace and trust you. Because you are the God who rescues and saves and redeems and restores. And I ask that you would also, as we understand that worship of you is exclusive, but that we would invite everyone in and we would want all that that entails. And sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's odd and weird as you do your work, but we want to trust you in the midst of that to speak of your grace and the great hope that we get to know centered on you and what you have done. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. All right, so as we, you know, start this first week of Ephesians, uh, take a moment as kind of run through the beginning of this first song and ask God to reveal to you the things in your life of maybe how you are trying to make God love you. You know, maybe the ways that you are trying to establish that peace because if I do these things, then you know, God's going to love me. If you've ever been one of those people who said, oh, I can't go to church, I can't go to there because lightning will strike me or the walls will fall down. Well, that's all about, you know, that's, all, that's all about you trying to make yourself acceptable. And that's not how it works. It's that God has come. And he, in Christ, he has accepted you. He has brought you in. So we don't have to run after false idols to make ourselves acceptable. We are because of Christ. And so all those things that make you think, I'm not good enough, I'm not doing enough, ask God to reveal those to you and to lay those things down and simply start to live and rest in the grace that you have received. Then sing a couple songs. And again, we will head out into this world worshiping hopefully who God is better by understanding how God is first rescued and saved.